0: It's great to have everyone on Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. This week, we're having Richard Hurwitz. He's the author of In the Garden of the Righteous, the heroes who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. He is going to be our speaker on our Yom HaShoah observance on Monday evening, April 17th, an evening of music, an evening of memory, and an evening with a fabulous author of an important new book, In the Garden of the Righteous. And here today, we have a little taste, which hopefully will encourage you to be present at the program on Monday, April 17th at 7 p.m. Let's listen to my conversation with Richard Hurwitz. Welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. It's wonderful to welcome our entire listenership for a fabulous conversation on an important new book, Uh, that is out right now uh, called In the Garden of the Righteous, the heroes who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. Um, On Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, we try to bring conversations that are of relevance, urgency, not just to the American Jewish community, but the human condition as a whole. And I think with this book um, by Richard Hurwitz, um, We have a conversation that is obviously um, connected deeply uh, to the Jewish people. But I think as the conversation unfolds, as we talk about uh, righteous Gentiles, those heroes who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust, it's really bigger than that. And I think that's what I'm very excited to get into with our guests here today. Richard Hurwitz is an investor, a writer, the publisher of the Octavian Report, a quarterly magazine of ideas, and host of the annual Octavian Forum. He is a chief executive officer of Octavian and Company. Richard serves on the governing board of the Yale University Art Gallery, and is a member of the Bretton Woods Committee, and of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was a co-founder and president of the Renew Democracy Initiative, an organization dedicated to defending liberal democracy. He is a graduate of Yale and Columbia Law School, where he was a Harlan Fisk stone scholar. Richard has published articles and opinion pieces about history and current events in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times, LA Times, Daily Beast, USA Today, the Times of London, History Today and Time. His book on Holocaust rescuers that we're going to talk about today, in the Garden of the Righteous, has been published by Harper Collins and is the subject of today's podcast. Richard, welcome to PAS Podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and I'm, I'm a big admirer of your your work too, and a listener to your sermons. So I'm I'm excited for the conversation.
0: Well, I, I, I Mazel Tov first and foremost on the publication. Thank it's you. a gorgeous book. I enjoyed. Um, re- reading it and receiving it and and in addition to it being important and beautifully written, one of the things that I love about the book is that one does not have to read it cover to cover because the chapters um, go by way of stories of individual um, righteous Gentiles um, who at different stages different moments, different backgrounds risk their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust and I, um, and one can read one chapter one night and get to another chapter another night. So it's a terrific new edition. Um, Richard, let me just ask you, because I'm reading your bio, you know, you're a business person, you have law degrees, you have otherwise, th- this kind of seems out of your lane. So I'm just curious, could you tell us sort of the origin story of this book, how it is that someone with your credentials decided to devote um, the, the time and the care to telling the story of uh, the righteous Gentiles and the Holocaust.
1: Sure. Um, so I did. I did. Um, I did study history at Yale, and so I, I am a trained historian. And um, actually, when I when I was in college, was when the um, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum opened in Washington, and um, my family has been here for for generations. So we we, we don't. I don't have Holocaust survivors although my my mother-in-law is a is a Holocaust survivor um but uh, my family like a lot of Jewish families made the pilgrimage down to see it and I I still remember going through that enormously enervating exhibit and the you see that the pile of shoes and they're of all including mm-hmm. children's shoes and at the time you know I, I I came out and and um you know I was a sophomore in college and it was it really affected me and I and at the end of the exhibit, they had a room where they, um, they had a a small exhibit dedicated to people who had tried to rescue Jews and tried to, tried to, um, you know, do the right thing, which is obviously very few people. And I remember gravitating to a photo, which is in the book and is actually also on the cover of the book of a young guy with a pipe who was around my age, the age I was at the time. And he was a member of a group called the white rose who tried to foment a student uprising. And, um, they wrote leaflets that they circulated. He actually um, wrote the second leaflet, which is one of the first documents that publicized the Holocaust. Um, and they, he said that several hundred thousand Jews had been killed in the most bestial way. And they, they, they were very idealistic um, young people. And and um, they were unfortunately turned in by a maintenance man at the university. And Hitler himself sent down a, his personal judge and they were executed within, within days. And it was a very tragic story. Um, but there was something really, um, also very inspiring about it. And, and that stayed with me ever since I actually thought about doing my thesis in college on it. Um, and, um, and then years later, um, I, I was researching another book project about my cousin who was at Nuremberg. And I found a story about a project to bring juice to the Virgin islands right after Kristallnacht, which had been blocked. And it was an unknown story by the state department. And I wrote about it in the wall street journal and I had a huge response. And then I wrote a story about the White Rose on the seventy-fifth anniversary of their execution, and um, and again that story—it was for the New York Times—just went completely viral. And so I started writing these short pieces for opinion pages in the Journal and the Times and the LA Times, the Daily Beast, and and I just found you know an an enormously positive response. And I've written other things on finance and you know where you get real people come at you, and but there was something really um, I think. People really had a hunger for these stories, and um, and so so that was sort of the origin of the project. I decided to turn it into a book, and then as I've gotten into rescue in general, it, it also is a very very shockingly undercovered area of 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 history and of Holocaust studies. And there were some reasons for that we could talk about right after the war why it it wasn't focused on, but. Um, you know, to me there's a historical injustice that everybody knows the name of Goering and everybody knows who himmler was and Hitler. and yet some of the people in my book, uh, you know, like Aristides de Souza Mendes saved probably thirty thousand people. nobody's heard of him and uh, and uh, once you get past Ballenberg, the first people of a certain age and and then and then Oscar Schindler, I mean we know very, very little about these people who are some of the most heroic people in the world. So you know I felt um you know that there's a gratitude is obviously a important jewish value and it's important humanist value and so the book to me is in part also also about um gratitude and then it's also about you know i try to talk about what are some of the lessons that we can learn today to make our society better to prevent things like the genocide um and to sort of create a kinder uh, more um more more empathetic society. And I think despite everything going on, at least from the reaction I've had to the book, there is there are many people who are interested in that.
0: Yeah. So I, w- I want to get to the particular stories, but I want to I want to focus in on on this thought that you just shared, because when we focus and uh, I'm a rabbi, I'm a Jewish educator, I'm constantly, you know, asking, um, you know, how, how to tell the story and what aspect in this case, the Shoah, the Holocaust, that I'm going to focus on. And, um, and there are, um, the perpetrators, uh, of horrific acts. Then there is, of course, um, the, the willing executioners, right? And we can talk about those who stood idly by. I think, right? Goldhagen, other authors have talked about how it is. And then here, um, we're speaking right in the scope of six million and, and many six million Jews and you know a far greater number of humanity uh, murdered at the hands of 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 Hitler um, and and the Nazis uh, that we should focus on what what numerically is probably uh, in, in relative terms, a very small number of lives. Um, I, th- I think in your book you point out that um, some twenty-seven thousand do I have that number right, yeah. and have been honored um, as righteous Gentiles, those who at personal risk and sacrifice save lives. So we're, we're not talking, I mean, that's a lot, but it's relative to the number of people who stood idly by. It's its not a big number. And I think the fear is, and I remember, you know, whenever I walk into Yad Vashem in, in Jerusalem, I, I ask myself this question, why is the very first thing that we are... Um, when you when walk into Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial, you see um, the Garden for the Righteous Gentiles. And, um, you know, is that some sort of, you know, human desire to put a, a, a silver lining to a horrific story, to have a Hollywood ending that we have an Oscar Schindler, we have a Wallenberg, we have a Nicholas Winton, whatever we have, who should be celebrated. But the enormity of the, the Shoah um, so, so how, do you, how do you square the circle there, Richard? Why is it so important to tell these stories? Um, and, and, and what's the, the trade-off? Um, you know, because for every family that hid an Anne Frank, you know, there are a lot of people who turned in the Anne Franks of the world.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, there were 27,000 people who have been honored by Yad Vashem out of 500 million people in Europe, I think if you filled Madison Square Garden with an average selection from Europe, it's like one or two people would have been rescuers, right? And they have very stringent criteria in Yad Vashem, but even if you multiply by 10, you're still talking about a tiny fraction. Um, my friend, Abe Foxman, uh, and I have talked a lot about this, um, because Abe has been at the forefront, you know, was the former head of the ADL, has been kind right. of... Right, he was like, hidden, wasn't he? Was he was a hidden it. child, and um, he's been at the forefront and a big supporter of this project. And You know, in the in the generations right after the war, um, there was uh, the view that you just articulated, which I think is still fair, that you don't want to distort the record. And people in general were fascinated by what drove people to evil. Um, So you had psychological experiments, like the Milgram experiments at Yale, or the Stanford, you know, prison experiments, and there were very few done actually on on rescuers. And some of that was because even though Yadva Israel, from the beginning, Part of the mission of yad vashem uh was to honor people uh who saved jews it's one of the core missions there so so that's even been from the beginning there gold of dedicated the garden of the righteous when she was foreign minister um but there was a concern by i think the first generation of people many of whom had not been rescued who had survived camps that the that there not be a distortion of the record um but of course many holocaust survivors also like miraculously were able to rebuild their lives in a positive way. And so as time went on, and people like Abe who were hidden children, you know, kind of got older, there was became more and more of a view of we we need to um, try to also look for the positive lessons that came out of the the Holocaust and, and, you know, try to understand why, why the, the very few people acted the way they did. Of course, I'm fascinated as well by communities where everyone came together and like Denmark, where you actually ended up having all of the Jews saved. And if that had happened, you know, throughout Europe, it might have been a very different, different story. So, but the vast majority of literature on the Holocaust today is about the very dark side of it, um, or about, you know, about, which is all important and about survivors, you know, memoirs, but there's just, there's almost nothing on rescuers. And I think the optimist in me wants to honor, wants to look for the good. I think when you try to talk to children, as well about um, about the Holocaust, really it's it's so difficult. I think the right way to start is actually through rescuers. I remember actually, after nine eleven, a totally different, obviously, circumstance. But they asked Mister Rogers, "How do you talk to little children about this?" And he said, "Look for the helpers," and it doesn't mean that you're ignoring what happened, but a, a, another scholar. Who focused on the town of Le Chambon said it's a little bit like a banister that you can hold. And if you kind of start with those people, it becomes easier to tell the story of what happened to others. Um, but I also think it's, you know, to me, it's the lessons we can learn from these people that are relevant today. Not that we're living through the Holocaust, but if we can try to understand them, we can do things, you know, we can combat bigotry and hatred and other things that we're, that we're dealing with. But it has been, a it was for a long time, a controversial Issue um, and uh, certainly, I don't mean to. Just dis- the, the purpose of my book is to shine a light on a small corner of, of um, something probably the worst moment in, in history, um, but yeah. to try to learn something to, from
0: that. I have to tell you, I I personally have gone full circle on this. I remember that sort of jarring moment when I went to the new Yad Vashem for the first time and I saw the Garden of the Righteous and and it was off putting, um, and now. Um, I think it's deeply important, as is your book deeply important. Um, not in a way to whitewash the horrors of the Shoah. Um, but for me, I mean, it's not lost on me that your book is called In the Garden of the Righteous. This is a little rabbi splaining here, but I think it's, um, goes back to in the Garden of Eden in the sense that, um, to be human as, as Genesis teaches is, um, to be given um, free will and to given choice and um, and that means the choice to choose good and evil and as Heschel said right um, it you know all um, uh, may be some may be guilty but all of us are responsible um, in the sense that at every decision point in our lives um, we actually have the choice of how to respond and so by highlighting by elevating, Um, Those individuals who asserted their free will at their own risk in order to prevent the loss of life of, in this case, Jews, um, is um, important in and unto itself, but also um, further damning those who either committed crimes or allowed crimes against humanity, against the Jewish people, um, to, to be inflicted. And I always, I don't know where it is. I, I think I saw it in, uh, in Germany. There's a, uh, in Berlin, I don't know if it's still there, there was a museum of, of terror or something and I remember seeing, for me, it was a bunch of folk, um, stockyard workers, extending their arms in the 1930s, you know, in the, in the Siegheil, you know, uh, demonstrating their loyalty and there was one worker in it, who's crossed his arms. And I I don't even know where the photograph is. I just remember the photograph. And and that photograph has 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 always stuck with me because I say to myself, that guy who was a, a dockyard worker, right? Surrounded by a bunch of, of, of people professing loyalty to the Nazi ideology or party, he stood there and he crossed his arms and he asserted his free will. And 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 I think for me, uh, Richard, I think that's the power of your
1: book and of of the reason why we highlight these stories. I totally agree with that. And, um, you know, I talk a little bit in the book and I'm not as well qualified at all as you are to, to, to speak about, about this, but I did talk a little bit about, you know, there's obviously the question that everyone struggles with about, you know, where was God during the, the holocaust and Ilya Wiesel talked about that and then sort of changed his his view and and I did talk about a little bit that to me these people are evidence of the you know because of free will you know the divine spark that we all have but so many people lost at that period of time and so that that's a that's a that's a I, I did talk a little bit about that and and Rabbi Sachs talked about it and I, I quoted him uh you know the first righteous among the nations was the the pharaoh's daughter. And, and the the tradition that she was able to go to paradise, one of nine people directly during her lifetime. And, you know, that even in the beginning, you know, this concept of, of not just saving Jews, but saving others. so is so profoundly part of, of our religion and, 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 and our, and, and, uh, and teachings. So let's let's talk about one um the the book
0: opens with a story I didn't know I mean I had heard the Sugihara story I had heard the Irina Sendler. you know there there's certain narratives that we know but I had never heard of Aristides Sousa Mendes and the story yeah. of of June 1940 just so people can get a sense of of the stories um that you are retrieving and and telling um and his um what what, what who was he and 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 um, who were the people he saved? Sure. So so um,
1: moment of nineteen forty. So a recent uh, review of the book actually called him the breakout star of the of the book. Um, uh, so so uh, de Souza Mendes was he was an aristocratic Portuguese um, uh, uh, d- diplomat. Um, he was a twin, and his brother was the very serious one who ultimately actually became foreign minister. And Susan Mendes was this bon vivant. Um, he was one of those diplomats that was an unbelievable host. He hosted people like Einstein in his home and he posted all, he was all over the world. He had 14 children and in, including in the United States. And so in, at his home in Portugal, they would fly the flags of all the places that his children had been born. And, um, when, he, and when he, and he was a devout Catholic, um, although he actually believed that that, like many Portuguese, he was descended Generations ago, from Conversos, but but he was a very devout Catholic, and um, he ended up posted uh, when he was in his fifties in June of 1940 as the consul general in Bordeaux, and when the Nazis invaded in in that month, um, as as you may know, there was probably the largest traffic jam in human history, as millions of people fled the north to the south um, away from the advancing Wehrmacht, then also in an attempt to get. Over the border into Spain or Portugal, which were neutral countries, and from there you could generally go to you know if you had the right papers to the United States or Palestine or elsewhere. And um, so you had this huge number—I mean, literally millions of people—and were they were horrific scenes of of the you know German bombers coming, and people saw their families killed in front of them, and 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 people were weaving in and out with bicycles, and 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 then you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people you know were in Bordeaux sleeping in train stations and restaurants and. You need in order to get out you needed a visa so people were going door to door to all of the consulates and they including the united states and, and basically everybody slammed the door and um when they got to port the portugal there were you know there were people sleeping out outside and the story is told that susan mendez who was a great humanitarian as well um, went out into the street and he met a young rabbi uh, who was originally poland but had spent a lot of time in belgium and they started talking and they, that he also had, Susan Mendes had 14 children and, and the rabbi was there with a lot of his children. And and the Susan Mendes said, you know, my consulate's kind of empty. I just had all my children home except my two oldest boys. Would you like to come stay the night? I feel badly you're, you're sleeping out on the street. So they they went and they spent this night together and talking. And um, and Susan Mendes said, you know, I'd really like to help you out. And get, I, can, I think I can give visas to your family. But let me back up for one second. So there was salazar who was the dictator of portugal um was was sympathetic to the germans but his main policy was that there not be a uh, uh that Ger- that spain and portugal not get pulled into the war and there not be a refugee crisis so he had sent very strict orders to all of his diplomats nobody nobody's allowed in particularly jews and it was very i mean they sent out circulars everybody knew it so so susan mendes was willing to kind of like you know bend the law a little bit for this guy, but the rabbi said to him, I can't leave every all my other all the other Jews here. So mm-hmm. thank you. It's very kind of you, but I can't. Yeah. And Susan Mendez had this moment where he had a uh, kind of, a, he described it later as a nervous breakdown. He took to his bed. And then after a couple of days, he got up and he said, he had this great line. He said, I would rather stand with God against man than with man against God. And then he went outside and he said, I'm going to give a visa to every single person who needs one. And then in a over the next three weeks, and he moved around to a couple of other cities as well, he issued thousands of visas. Each visa could cover a, a family. He personally escorted people across the border. Among the people he saved were um, Salvador Dali and his wife, um, the people who wrote Curious George, and who had the manuscript with them, um, the Habsburg family, the Rothschilds, and then just thousands of ordinary, mostly Jewish refugees. and. Um, and so so then you know they they met, they got out and um when uh france capitulated he was summoned back to lisbon and um, he salazar was livid um and he um he he was brought up on disciplinary charges he was fired from the foreign service his pension was basically removed he um had to eat in the jewish soup kitchen um, and he uh over time had to sell off all of his possessions. um uh, his wife died prematurely. he had a stroke and died prematurely um and and quite frustrated because the Portuguese later sort of took credit for a lot of what what he did and um, it took decades for him to be recognized. actually, the United States recognized him way before Portugal did, but today he's a a hero in Portugal, and um they they think that he's um his rescue, and no, again, as you no one's heard of him, or very few people outside this kind of scholarly world have heard of him. but, um they believe he was this was the largest rescue by a single individual in the entire Holocaust. and they he may have saved as many as thirty thousand people and And a remarkable experience I've had with people like him or a Sugahara is whenever I've written about them, inevitably, not only will people write to me like, I'm alive because of this person, but people I know will. Will wow. uh, will say that I mean it's probably likely given the audience that we're talking to right now that there are people listening to this podcast that may be alive because of because, because of, the, of uh, Susan. Susan Mendes. Mendes. Yeah. yeah,
0: let let me ask you, because we're um, and every chapter is a story, some known, some unknown, um, and that's actually the the what this book is all about. Um, but as as I think about all the various personalities and I think you use a term towards the end called the, the, altruistic personality, you know, what, what drives someone, um, can you come up with any grand theses, right? Is it their faith? Is it their nationality? Is it their, um, you know, what, what, what's in the cereal, the secret sauce? Is there anything that make that you you can say these, Righteous Gentiles I've profiled all share X characteristic that when the going got tough, they put their necks out to save Jewish lives or, or not.
1: I think the answer, so it's yes, I think there are. Um, there were very, as I said, very few psychological studies done. The one most comprehensive one actually found that the only commonality that they really zeroed in on was actually how you were disciplined by your parents and that people who were disciplined in a, in a loving way in a rational way where they were explained to them what they did wrong and the punishment was commensurate with the with with what they did they they tended to be much more likely to rescue as opposed to people whose parents just ira- were irrational and would use violence and like fly off a handle that's not entirely satisfying as a as a complete answer um you know i i think from the stories that i i I looked at, for sure, if you were somebody who was in an international profession where you were in touch with people from other countries or are different from you, that was important. Creative people tended to be more more rescue. Um, faith, I think, was the single most important um, uh, uh, sort of commonality, um, not for everyone, but, but believe in something bigger than yourself, but certainly religious faith of many kinds. So I have Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, Muslim, Greek, you know, Eastern Orthodox. Um, mm-hmm. if you believed in the real teachings of, you know, uh some of which come from the Old Testament, love, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, New Testament. I mean, though th- if you believed in that as opposed to sort of being involved with the church because of the hierarchy and all that, like that really made a difference. Um, but I would say if there was one thing um that really stood out, it was that almost all of them had some parent or other role model um, as a child who did two things. one is really modeled for them a belief that other people uh, are the same as that we're all the same, that we have a responsibility to each other, that we shouldn't be prejudiced against other people, expose them to that. Um, that was really important. and also a lot of them actually were grew up in kind of loving homes where their interests were valued, and that generally led to song self-esteem so some of these people would have been considered in normal times eccentric but as you were talking about the you know the guy who crossed his arms in that famous Mm -hmm. picture these were people who really um uh didn't they thought for themselves and they didn't go along with the crowd and and at this time obviously the crowd is all the people you were talking about who were you know the bystanders or the collaborators but they really had an ability a very strong inner. strength to say this isn't this isn't I don't this does not consistent with my moral compass or what I believe is right. Mm -hmm. And so that 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 actually is from a psychological standpoint a a commonality um among them. And and then there's all there's a whole separate sort of you know kind of work I've done on communities that came together, but that's that's sort of a whole separate conversation. Mm Um right. So
0: a final question, just the the timeliness of the publication. I mean I have to imagine that any righteous Gentiles, um, of the Holocaust era, um, are no longer, if, if any, I mean, this is, this is a generation like the Holocaust survivors themselves who are, are increasingly fewer and further between. Um, but I also am aware of what's going on in the world right now. And, um, the, the countless instances, whether it's war, whether it's the environment, um, whether it's any number of, uh, um, issues here in America that we're constantly um, uh, faced with the question of whether to be an upstander or to be a bystander um, so I'm just wondering how you um, would situate this conversation uh, in the context of of two thousand and twenty three why is this so very important
1: well you're right I mean this generation there really are really no more rescuers um, I did have the opportunity to interview a lot of their children which was fascinating and um, I think um, actually, you know, the question of what we all would do, the haunting question, if we were around then is a difficult one. And you have to, you know, I think you have to keep in mind that in some countries like Poland, people who rescued others were, um, you know, subject to not only execution themselves, but their families. So it's very hard for us to judge them. But there was an interesting comment made by someone in Holland who was a rescuer. And he was said, you know, people like him were the tip of the spear, but what really made a difference was the people who looked the other way, or who supported people quietly, and I think made gestures of kindness. I mean, the people like Primo Levi wrote about that that really kept them alive. And so I think it's that culture. And in other countries, people ran to turn you in. And I think as well, um, you know, what so that's what you know when you look at communities. I think it really small things make a big difference, and so you know I don't you know thank God would none of us, hopefully ever have to live through anything like the Holocaust. But there are horrific things going on in the world right now. There you know in Ukraine there are horrendous war crimes being committed. There's Uyghurs in concentration camps. Uh, I'm sure many people on this pod, listening to the podcast know people who are doing quite heroic work on the front lines there. But but supporting people like that is important. And I also think even as you know it's so important to start with children. And so people make fun of the anti-bullying campaigns and things like that, but I actually think it's quite important that to say, you know, you really can make a difference when you, um, if you have a, you see someone being bullied or someone being, um, you know, uh, not just discriminated against, but just being treated, uh, if you stand up and if we have a culture where, you know, the grass majority of people don't tolerate that, that really makes, a big difference, and 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 when the, the Holocaust didn't happen overnight, right? Yeah. It started with words. It started with things like the Jewish boycott, boycott of Jewish businesses, which people just went along with, and then it emboldened the Nazis. So, I think it's very important to speak out, and mm-hmm. um, and it's so we're a long way off from anything like the Holocaust, but we do, I think, need to, to model some of the courage these people had in in our own society of of of, of trying to do whatever we can to. To say that that's you know we that we don't tolerate that kind of um, behavior and and I think that that sort of sows the seeds of something of a better world as opposed to going in a very dark direction.
0: Amen, amen, amen. And if people reading the book, listening to this podcast, are able to take that message into uh, their own sphere, um, in whatever walk of life we are in, then this world will be a better world. Um, to Richard Hurwitz, I want to thank you for joining us on PAS Podcast, your new book, In the Garden of the Righteous, The Heroes Who Risk Their Lives to Save Jews During the Holocaust. A fabulous book, a fabulous read, deeply important. Richard, I wish you every success. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank
1: you for having me. It was was, uh, fascinating.
0: Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah.